You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Well, for the next two Sundays, Lord willing, um, I have the rare opportunity uh, to teach a standalone message that isn't part of a larger teaching series. So I had this gap uh, in my teaching calendar for the year and thought we were going to have uh, a friend in to teach this morning, and that didn't pan out, uh, which is great. So it left this hole and gave me an opportunity to spend some time thinking and praying for the last few weeks about uh, what God wanted me to share. And last Sunday afternoon, as I was sitting and thinking about this, uh, both a text and a title came to mind. So, for the next two weeks, uh, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, specifically verses 12 to 22, and uh, I want to talk about tactical living in troubled times. Tactical living in troubled times. And so before we jump into our text, I want to talk for a second about this word tactical. It actually comes from a Greek word, taktike, which means art of arrangement, So when we say that something is tactical, what we're really saying is that it is artfully arranged or artfully planned. And so here's the question that I want us to consider for the next couple of weeks. How do we live artfully arranged lives as a community? How do we? God designed us to flourish in this world. And so how do we live artfully arranged lives as a community, particularly as a young church that has been through immense transition, is trying to recover from a global pandemic in the least church city in the United States of America? How do we live artfully arranged lives as a community? And so here's the overarching big idea for the next couple weeks. If you like to take notes, you can write this down. Troubled times demand tactical living. Troubled times demand tactical living. Now, I can't imagine that it is going to come as any surprise for you to hear that we are absolutely living in troubled times. Watch a little bit of news. Talk to anybody who's in social work or mental health. Listen to any amount of our political discourse. Read one of the many reports coming out regarding the mass decline taking place in people of faith in general, but in the Christian church in particular, or just think about your own experience in life. We live in troubled times. Furthermore, because we live in a world that is marred by brokenness, we're always going to live in troubled times until Jesus redeems all things. And so to live as though that's not true, to live as though everything is great, to live as though everything is easy breezy all the time is dangerously delusional. But the good news is God has not left us without help. His spirit dwells within us, And he has given us the guidance of the scriptures to help us navigate these times. See, the truth is, we aren't the first generation to follow Jesus in troubled times. I mean, just think about what even little you might know about the context from which the movement of Jesus first emerged. It started in the face of immense, immense persecution. And so what that teaches us is that we can, in fact, live flourishing lives even in troubled times. We have lots of examples of that in Scripture. We have so many examples from church history. We don't need the world to get better 
for our lives with God and our lives with one another to be immensely rich. But it does require that we get tactical and artfully arrange our lives to do so. And so to that end, I want to draw our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, that's where we're going to be, 1 Thessalonians 5. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, all the scripture is going to be on the screen, so you don't need to worry about it. So a little bit of context about this letter in case it's one that you're not familiar with. This church at Thessalonica, which Thessalonica was an ancient city in northern Greece, uh, and it was started by the Apostle Paul, along with two young men named Timothy and Titus. And so here's how they went about it. Paul spent in Thessalonica a few Sabbaths teaching in the synagogue, and as a result of that teaching, some uh, Jewish people put their faith in Jesus and became Jewish Christians, and uh, also a lot of Gentiles made that decision as well, including, we learned from Acts chapter 17, some women from leading families that actually began to host churches in their homes. But the success of their church planting efforts there, because those churches started to grow, it resulted in overwhelming persecution. So much so that someone actually started a riot in the streets, and then they wrongfully blamed Paul for that. And as a result, Paul had to flee Thessalonica sooner than he had planned in order to protect these new Christians there. But in the midst of all of this trouble, the church survived. And so by and large, this was a very healthy church. When we read letters like the ones that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we know that not all churches were healthy. But this one was relatively, by and large, healthy. But there is something with which we have to come to terms, and that is this. Even the healthiest church is not without its problems. Amen? So if you're like, that was a bit hearty for that. You're like, no kidding. So if, like, if you come in this morning because you're just on the search for the perfect church, it's not this one, okay? Again, no need for an amen there. You guys really, you're, you're very hurtful where you place your amens is what I've decided. Now, now that being said, the, the problems that Paul addresses in these verses are very similar to the problems that he addresses in his letter to the Romans. They're almost identical to the problems that Peter has to address in his epistles as well. And so one thing we learn from these New Testament letters is that there were and are similar problems that are common in nearly all churches. There are similar attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that hinder our ability to flourish as individuals and to flourish in community together. And so these letters in general, and our verses this morning in particular, help us understand how we can actually live tactically, how we can artfully arrange our lives to flourish even in troubled times. So again, my original plan was to tackle all these verses in one week. But as I started to study and I started writing, it was becoming very apparent quite quickly that this needed to be one sermon in two parts so that we're not here for like three hours today. So between this week and next, what we're going to do is we are going to look at four marks of spiritually tactical living. And let me just give those to you. We're only going to look at one this morning. But those four marks are this, respect for leaders, care for others, communion with God, and discerning his voice. Those are the four marks that we're going to see Paul lay out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So this morning, we're only going to look at this first mark. And so number one, if you're taking notes, is this, respect for leaders. If we're going to live artfully arranged lives, this has to be a component present in front of us. So look with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes this, he says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition 
to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonish just means to provide counsel if you're unfamiliar with that word. Verse 13, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So here's what's happening in these verses. Paul, as I had mentioned, started this church, and then he had to leave very, very quickly due to persecution. And so in his wake is this young church left to function in his absence. So just like really imagine that for a second. He had a very short period of time. The Spirit of God awakens a group of people's heart to faith. and They're looking to Paul to be like, it wasn't even like today, like the Christian church was a brand new thing. And so it's not like any of these people had any experience with any of this whatsoever. And then the person who God uses to give birth to it just has to bounce after just a matter of weeks. And so then they're just left to figure this out on their own. Now, the good news is that with some time, some individuals really did begin to emerge in this new community as leaders. The challenge was there wasn't a clear path to that leadership. So Paul hadn't had, like Jesus, had three years to invest in his disciples. So Paul didn't get to be there to be able to identify, to equip, and to empower a designated group of leaders. It just had to happen much more naturally. Now, that is a beautiful evidence of God's grace that it did happen, but it was also a little bit complicated. And apparently, we learned from these verses, there were some still in the church that were reluctant to recognize and therefore respect these emerging leaders. And so Paul encourages them to do just that. And in this, I really think there's two things that are important for us to notice. The first one is I want you to notice what qualified and designated these people as leaders. It wasn't their wealth. It wasn't their social status. And it wasn't even their theological pedigree. It was their labor that marked them as leaders. These leaders were the group of people that had poured themselves out in service to this very vulnerable church. And that's why Paul says, give recognition to those who labor among you. Now, I think that's really worth noting because it's very common in many modern churches for leaders to be platformed based on one of two things, either their vocational success meaning they've had success in business, and so therefore they must know how to run a church, because apparently it's the same thing. It's not, spoiler alert. Or because of their financial contribution. Now, vocational success is great. Super pro that. I hope that you all succeed in your jobs and do awesome. And we should all be so thankful for any and all financial contribution that takes place in our church, because without it, we wouldn't be here. And those things aren't what made a leader in Paul's eyes, and they aren't what make for a spiritual leader in our eyes either. It's sacrificial labor that marks good spiritual leaders. Sacrificial labor marks good spiritual leaders. The second thing I want you to notice is the fact that Paul had to call them to respect these people tells us that it wasn't happening to the degree that it needed to. Now, here's why that resonates with me. I think that we have a major opportunity to grow in this respect. And, and I'm not just talking about respect for pastors like me and Tyler or leaders like those serving on our leadership council, but even just toward one another in general. If you think about it, honor is, inherent, uh, is an inherent part of many Eastern cultures, but our culture in the West is largely void of anything resembling the respect that is owed to every single image bearer of God. Again, even just a few minutes on social media, a few minutes watching the news, 
pick your poison, doesn't matter which one it is. Just listening to the way that friends and spouses tend to speak to and about one another. All of that, and we come to this place where we realize, wow, we, we really more and more live in a deeply dishonoring culture. And it's true in the church as well. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, you know that Paul said, take the lead in honoring one another. So that wasn't just to leaders, that was to the community at large and would be the overarching principle that really comes out of what he's saying here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Take the lead. Other translations will say, outdo one another. I like that. I'm competitive. I want to be better at this than you. But here, in our translation, it says, take the lead in honoring one another. And so the absence of this honor is a major reason why communities of all kinds fracture. A lack of honor is why marriages fracture, why friendships fracture, why churches fracture and split up and don't actually end up making it for the long run. Oftentimes, it boils down to a simple failure to be honoring and respectful to one another. And so, biblically and culturally, I believe this is so important. I just want to share a few suggestions for how we can grow as a people of honor. Remember, one of the things spiritual leaders are supposed to do is admonish us. Now, I don't know why, but that word has always stuck me as like, like kind of disciplinary, but it's not in any way. It's simply a matter of someone coming alongside of us and helping us figure out, well, how do we actually do this? And so to that end, I want to share just three suggestions for how we can grow as a people of honor in our community and in uh, all of the relationships that we have. So three things. Here's the first one. Number one, express gratitude. Sounds simple, right? By and large, we suck at this as a culture. So it might sound obvious, but it's worth restating that we need to learn to express gratitude. Now, I have both experienced personally and I, I've heard many stories from people in our church of doing something kind and generous for another person and receiving nothing by way of gratitude in response, which isn't awesome. I mean, we're talking like generous gifts that have been given, kind gestures, buying meals for people, having people over to their home, watching kids, and in response, no generosity reciprocated and often no gratitude really expressed. And one of the reasons I think that that is increasingly common for us, this lack of gratitude, is because on the other side, I think that we have just become more and more a deeply entitled culture. And entitlement is the enemy of honor. Entitlement says, I am owed this. Like, why, why would I show honor? Why, why would I write a thank you note? Why would I reciprocate when someone does something kind for me? I deserve this. Now, we may not say that. I mean, good Lord, I hope that we're not saying that out loud. We may not even be consciously thinking it, but the lack of expressed gratitude reveals it to at least some degree. And so instead of entitlement, we need to cultivate a spirit of gratitude. No one, we really need to understand this, no one has to do anything for us. They just don't. And so anything nice, anything kind, anything generous that people do, it is a gift that we should be grateful for. And the right response to the feeling of generosity is to actually express it. And so if we are going to be a people of honor, we must learn to express gratitude. Now, secondly, uh, and this might not sound quite as obvious or intuitive, uh, is convey needs. One way that we can grow 
a culture of honor here toward one another, is to convey the things that we need from one another. So we, and I say we because I do the same thing, we tend to have a bad habit with people in general, and oftentimes those who lead us in particular, of expecting them to be able to read our minds. Right? We do this with our spouses. We do this with our friends. We do it, people do it to me. Like, we just expect one another to be able to read our minds, to know what we need without having ever communicated it. And I got to tell you, this is a recipe for disappointment. And also, like for me, one of great discouragement as well. So first, behaving like the, like, let's just talk about our relationship, church and pastor, because this really, I really care about this. It is going to be disappointing to you if you don't convey your needs. Because, again, speaking for myself, I'm never going to be able to read your mind. And so what that means is, I don't always know when a person needs to talk. I don't always know when a person needs to be prayed for, when they might benefit from some time. And so if you don't send a text, if you don't write an email, if you don't pull me aside and say, hey, I'm I'm struggling, can we get together, I'm never going to know and you're going to be disappointed. And I have had multiple experiences over the last few months of it coming to my attention that someone's very frustrated with me because I haven't done something that they needed or wanted and I had no idea. (laughs) So it's not for lack of desire, it's for lack of understanding. And that is what is very, very discouraging to me because my sole desire, my deepest longing as a pastor, is to be helpful to you. That's the entire, like, no one comes to Salt Lake City to like become a famous spiritual leader. That doesn't happen here, right? You get 100 people in this city, and you're like, you're a megachurch, okay? Like, that has nothing, like, I am, I am solely here because I believe a couple of things. Number one, I believe this city needs us. I believe this city needs our church. And my singular desire is to help and to serve in a way that positions us to be what our city needs us to be. But I can't read minds, and neither can anyone else in your life. And so an important way that we can work, as Paul says, to be at peace among ourselves, literally it means like, don't fight. And so one of the most important ways that we can avoid that and be at peace is to be a people of honor by conveying our needs to one another. Does that make sense? So the first one is express gratitude. The second one is to convey needs. And then here's the third, assume positive intent. Assume positive. You know why people go, "Mm." it's because we suck at it, okay? (laughs) That's called resonance. So this tends to be very, very hard for me. So I'll speak for myself. I tend to assume negative intent. So I assume everyone hates me. Yeah, don't, you don't have to, it's, you know, I'm not looking for sympathy. I appreciate it, but it's, I'm okay. But I do, I assume like people are against me. I assume people are trying to destroy me. That one's a little dramatic. Now, I'm, I'm not going to bore you with all the psychology from which that grows, but I know enough about human nature to know that assuming positive tent is not natural for most of us. And so I'm not saying that we should naively believe that everyone's intent will always only be positive toward us. Like sometimes people do intend to harm. Sometimes people do intend to wound. Sometimes people do intend to sin against us. The truth is we all do that at times. But my point is, assuming that is always the case 
is a dangerous starting point because it makes us combative all the time. And so oftentimes, a person in our life doesn't intend anything negative, but the impact of what they say or do feels negative to us. And so when that happens, but we assume negative intent, we tend to come at one another in a combative posture, and it creates sometimes completely needless conflict. And so what's lacking is mutual understanding. And so the wise response, this is such an important relational principle here. The wise response when we are hurt, when we're confused about something, or when we are offended is always this. Seek clarification prior to declaring combat. Seek clarification prior to declaring combat. So let let me just give you an example. Imagine that I say or do something that offends you. Some of you won't have to imagine. You can just remember a time that happened, okay? Now, I use myself as an example because a huge part of my job responsibilities here center around talking. Now, believe it or not, I've gotten way better, but sometimes I say something off the cuff that doesn't come across correctly or something I say is misunderstood and someone is confused or offended. And so if that happens with me or anyone else in your life, You always have two ways that you can respond. The first way is to assume negative intent. And so you assume, you believe that that we, whoever it is that's done this, wants to offend you, wants to confuse you, wants to hurt you with our words. And the truth is when we believe that someone is trying to harm us, we get very combative in an attempt, understandably, to protect ourselves. So you can assume negative intent. But the other option is to assume positive intent. You can assume that the hurt you're feeling probably was not intended by the person. And so I just want you to think for a second about the way that that changes your posture as you seek clarification, the way that it changes your words, the way that it might change your tone. Rather than attacking, we're able to come with some curiosity and to say something like, hey, when when you said or, or, or did that, I, I was hurt. Can you help me understand what you meant or, or why you said or did that? And oftentimes, rather than conflict, when we come that way, assuming positive intent, rather than conflict, what we experience is remorse. Where someone says, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry that hurt you. That was not my intention. And this is the place where we can repair the inevitable ruptures that occur in every relationship. Now, if a person says, yeah, I was mad and I wanted to hurt you, that's a totally different conversation. My point is just to say that much of our conflict in a relationship is needless because it's based on faulty assumption. And so we should never assume motive and we should always do our best to assume positive intent. If we are going to be a people of honor, We need to express gratitude, we need to convey needs, and we need to assume positive intent. Now, we're going to tackle the final three marks of tactical living in troubled times next week, but as we bring this to a close today, I really want to make sure that we understand why everything that Paul is going to talk about in these verses is so important. Why does this matter so much? And I think it's important that we understand the why behind this because much of this is very hard. And hard things tend to be very uncomfortable for us. But even still, I want you to notice that not one time 
in any of these 10 verses we're going to look at this week and next, not one time does, does Paul pose any of them as suggestions. They are imperatives, each one. They're commands. And that isn't because Paul was controlling. It's because he was so clear in his heart and mind what was at stake. And we have to understand what is at stake. So first of all, remember that Jesus sacrificed his life for the church. He gave his life so that communities like ours could live in grace together and learn how to love one another and the context in which God has placed them. And so one of the most important ways that we honor the sacrifice of Christ in our daily lives is by loving one another well. And when we mess up, we apologize. When we hurt, we take ownership and we work to fix. And when people apologize, we forgive. That is one of the primary reasons that Jesus sacrificed his life. In addition to that, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus cast the following vision for his disciples. He said this, he says, you are the light of the world. I want you to just think about that for a second. How many people in our world, in our, world, in our country, who are not followers of Jesus, would think about the church and go, you know what, you know what that, those Christians are like? The light of the world. I mean, I, I, I listen to a lot of people who are not Christians. I don't hear them say that very much. But that was Jesus' vision. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So Jesus' intention for every single local church is that they would be like a lighthouse safely guiding hurting people toward the healing that only comes in and through him. And these four marks that we're going to look at are the light that he uses to guide people's way home. We are living through a season as a culture where we are seeing mass decline in the number of people following Jesus. Nine million less people post-COVID attend church every single week and practice their faith than did prior to COVID. Just in our country, nine million people. That's the entire metro population of Chicago. Isn't that crazy? We should be paying attention to that. And more specifically, we live in a city with the least number of Christians and the least number of Bible-believing churches in our country. We have got to keep that front of mind. We can't afford to get this wrong. There is too much at stake for us. We have to learn to love one another well. We are going to hurt one another, period. It's going to happen. But we also need to grow in our commitment to repair every relational rupture that we can. Troubled times demand tactical living, and so let's respect not only the leaders who labor among us, but also work to build a culture of mutual honor. Do this in our friendships. Do this in our marriages. Do this in our church. And so to that end, let's pray and ask that the Spirit of God would help us to do just that. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have not called us to walk through this life alone. You created us. You designed us for community. You designed us for relationship. And relationship, as you know, is extremely hard. 
And so often we are not well equipped to be able to live in a healthy manner with the people in our lives. And we all have woundedness and trauma that we have experienced that hinders our ability to function relationally in a way that's healthy and leads to wholeness. And so we are just desperately in need of your help. Would you teach us? Would you form us? Would you make us more and more like your son Jesus who gave his life so that we could live in community with you and with one another and love you and one another well? And we just confess that it's real hard. So would you protect us? Would you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name.